0: It's another magnificent opportunity we have to come together this evening, having been blessed with a joyous day in terms of the great many physical blessings with which God has so richly and abundantly blessed us. But also the opportunities to come together in a spiritual assembly, as this one is, to render worship to the very one who, of course, is so deserving thereof. And in so doing, that we might be encouraged that this week we may be stronger, better able to serve Him pleasingly, and in ways that would bring glory and influence to those round about us from day to day. As we each have been aware now for quite some time, we began a series of lessons on the first Sunday evening in June. And we are now approaching the end of September, and we are still studying with some richness, power, and greatness that 66th and final book in the Holy Scriptures, the book of Revelation. As we've come to this point in that study, we have arrived all the way at chapters 14 and 15 this evening. And might I add that as we introduce the lesson, to note some of the just brief things that we observed last Lord's Day evening. As we looked at the first 13 verses of Revelation 14, we were reminded of the beautiful oasis on the desert of sorrow and sin. How so often when things look their bleakest, God will raise the eyes of his faithful and allow them to see the joyous reward that awaits and also the terrible punishment that awaits those who have chosen to live rebelliously to his will and those who have refused to humbly submit and bow to him. That's exactly a perfect way to encapsulate Revelation 13 as well as the first few verses of Revelation 14. For in particular, in the first five verses, we saw the blessed Lamb standing on Mount Zion with 144,000 with Him. And we saw that we, of course, desired to be amongst that number, for those were the redeemed. They were, in fact, redeemed from the earth. They were undefiled and spiritually pure. But then we quickly saw three angels, or as John saw them, he wrote, and we too could observe and witness them we noticed that these three angels had as their presentation things that directly spoke about the character of the judgment. First, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. With the falling and the crushing blow due to Babylon, we appreciated that first those, namely the Roman Empire, who had opposed God in its fullness, would certainly meet their defeat. And they would, in fact, meet their God in judgment. But also two other angels. One gave a tremendous picture of the judgment as a whole. The thoroughness and power thereof reminded us yet again that God is the judge. And we all shall one day stand and give account for the deeds done in the body, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, and stand then with eternity hanging in the balance, whether we've been found faithful or whether we've been found unfaithful. Finally, in terms of the last greatness, we saw that beautiful positive note to those that die in the Lord. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. With that as our last passage or last verse of last week, it introduces us perfectly to where we shall undertake our discussion tonight. For in the last seven verses of Revelation 14 and then the entirety of Revelation 15, we encounter the first of but many episodes in the chapters that follow that focus our attention most especially on the reality of the judgment. It would be well for us to note at the outset of the lesson that there are those in our world today who are rather averse to the subject of judgment. They seem to feel that there shall be no time of judgment with an absolute eternity to follow because they, at least in their mind, are unable to comprehend how time, in fact, could have any bearing on what God would do with respect to an eternity. May I suggest that if God is not a liar, then there will be a judgment, for he mentions it too many times. In fact, one of the key ideas to be found in all of the New Testament is that of a judgment. As we shall see tonight in some of our passages and discussions, in fact, in Revelation chapters 14 through 19, the next five chapters of this book, the central theme will not move far from that of judgment. With that said, let us turn then and read in Revelation 14, beginning in verse 14 through the end of that chapter, and then we'll return and make some comments about the power and the greatness of these last seven verses of Revelation 14. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, "'Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle.' And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God and the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. In the reading of that passage, a few points might well be made as we try to put into our mind the thing that we've just read. And so if I might, let me draw forth some of the thoughts as we imagine, because again, what John saw, he wrote in a book, and as we read what he wrote, we can at least visualize or imagine what it is that he saw. In verse 14, John saw a white cloud. But there was one riding on this cloud, and amazingly, this one was like unto the Son of Man. Interestingly enough, this one had a golden crown on his head, and in his hand was a sharp sickle. Immediately, we gain the impression, the viewpoint that this one in perspective is able to perform reaping able to in fact undergo a harvest for that's what a sickle is as we shall see in a picture in just a moment we might imagine that some of those sickles as you and I may have seen them in life you use them at least on the farm to harvest to cut down particular stalks or grains and in so doing you're able to put it into shocks and thus per undergo or perform a harvest but that isn't all that John saw For he saw another angel who appeared or came out of the temple. Specifically in verse number 15. And this angel that appeared encouraged that one riding on the cloud to reap. That is to say to thrust in his sickle into the earth and thus reap. A rather interesting encouragement, wouldn't you say? Here's an angel encouraging this one likened to the Son of Man to harvest. To thrust in the sickle and thus to arrive at a time of harvest. But then in verse number 16, he that sat on the cloud did exactly as he was bidden. And furthermore, in verse 17, yet another angel appears. Notice with me, this one also came out of the temple, and he too had a sharp sickle. As we shall readily see, this angel also was given orders or was given information in which he too was to undergo a harvest by thrusting in his sickle. Notice verse number 18. And another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire. That shall be significant in just a moment. And cried with a loud voice to him that had the sharp sickle, thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather. We have a number of angels mentioned. Here is another that encourages that second one that had the sharp sickle to thrust in that sickle and to reap. Amazingly enough, though, as you and I are well aware, specifically in light of the language of verse 18, one may have thought we were in discussion of grapes, for after all, it is mentioned from the vine. But when these are cast into the winepress, it is not grape juice that comes forth. Verse number 19 and 20, it is blood. As blood comes forth, it comes forth in such great amount that it extends even under the horse bridles a full extent of some 1,600 furlongs. Having listened, though, to that and visualized it in part, here's a picture that an artist has drawn. As you can see with me, the features concerning the various angels as they appear, and as you can see, the first is holding this sickle. A very sharp, knife-edged idea or object that's able to cut very certainly and very definitely. And you'll notice that as this angel comes forth with these matters, might we remember that this first, supposedly riding on a white cloud, which leads us to appreciate that some aspects of the picture do not quite correspond to everything that we might have expected based on the reading. But at this point, Let's make some observations or try to understand more clearly that which has been presented to us. Thus, consider with me these. The very mention of the Son of Man in verse 14. It is true that the one said here, riding on the white cloud, was likened unto the Son of Man, and yet throughout the entirety of the Word of God, no doubt to our mind rushes first and foremost the very one who called himself the Son of Man." It is the case that in the Old Testament, God called Ezekiel the Son of Man roughly 90 times in that book. But when you and I think of the New Testament, there can be but one person who would wear that idea and be called by a name like that. For Jesus often referred to himself that we were using the very phrase, the Son of Man. And after all, the very fact that this one is riding a white cloud... And in the scene that follows is without question a scene of judgment. And to our mind certainly rushes thoughts such as Acts 1 verses 9 through 11. There our blessed Savior after the occurrence of the resurrection and after the time of his discussion with those apostles and other disciples, we remember that that 40 days having passed in Acts 1, 9 through 11, there from Mount Olivet he began to ascend into the clouds. And interestingly, what was stated on that occasion? These two angels that appeared, in fact, discussed with those apostles and said, Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? For this same Jesus, as ye have seen go into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go. In Revelation 1, verses 5 through 7, the very opening chapter of this book, Do we not read there that, Behold, he cometh with clouds? Jesus, of course, shall return some sweet day. And on that occasion, we have the greatest of scriptural affirmation, that he shall come with the clouds. Never is it promised to us, of course, that he shall set foot upon this earth, but he shall appear in the clouds. And interestingly enough, can we not see otherwise that in verses 14, 15, and 16, notice that this one riding the cloud was one that had authority over a judgment over the reaping. What was it about this reaping, though, that seemed so significant? First of all, what about the ordering of it? Notice that the first reaping here, the first one that thrust in his sickle, that one described like unto the Son of Man, we have no information or record that they who were reaped on that occasion were ungodly or wicked in any way or shape, form, or fashion. But rather, when that second angel thrust in his... We notice there that those were the wicked. We have a significant matter of ordering stated here. What do we learn in the Thessalonian letter? 1 Thessalonians 4. The dead in Christ shall rise first. 1 Thessalonians 4.16. And then afterward we're promised otherwise that they who are not the Lord's at his coming but all shall rise in the same hour. Notice that that ordering corresponds precisely to this one. And more significantly as well... Might we notice that in verses 14 and 15 as well, we have direct reference to this time when the earth shall be reaped. We each know that when the time of reaping comes in a cornfield or in a wheat field or barley or some other grain, following that there's nothing left. That's the end for that season. And so shall it be when it comes to the earth. The earth shall not undergo or have a period of ripe utopia following which things on earth will be glorious and good again. That shall be the end. It is no wonder that our Savior in John chapter 6, four times in the space of 12 verses, He said there will be a last day. Now if the Lord meant what He said, that means there's coming a time when He returns and that shall be the last day. The earth will know no more days. Peter informs us in Second Peter 3 verse 10 that the heavens and the earth shall be burned up and all that therein is, including the elements out of which they're made. Indeed, the last day. But amazingly, and also of great interest too, is the scene in verse 15 when that son of man thrust in his sickle. Information was given to him along that line by that angel. That may on one hand seem a bit perplexing, an angel giving Jesus instruction as to when to undergo the reaping. But might we remember that it's where did that angel come from? Verse 15 says that angel came from the temple, and that temple was in heaven. So the information in terms of this judgment would occur when the God of heaven determined to close the affairs of time, and he again dispatched his son to come in the clouds and make an end to all things. It seems to harmonize so well with our understanding of the plain passages of the Savior's return, doesn't it? In fact, an impressive picture. On the one hand, good, but notice beginning in verse 16 and 17. For those unprepared and for those who shall be reaped with the reaping of that angel. Notice how negative it appears for them. Isn't it amazing here that in verse 17, this angel also has a sharp sickle. As we shall see in a moment, the Bible does make note for us that the angel shall have a role to play when our Savior does return. And in verse 18, this angel that's here under discussion had power over fire, and he cried with a loud voice unto the one that had the sharp sickle, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. We know that when it comes to fruit trees and other kinds of matters like that, that we can tell when the proper time for harvest is. The apples turn red or the grapes reach the point when they are fully ripe and mature. There is every indication here that of course the earth will come to a point of ripeness and that shall be when God determines it so. No man can figure that out. For did not Jesus say in Mark 13, verse 32, Of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father only. No man, regardless how wise or scholarly he may appear to be, can figure out the occasion and the timing of the Lord's second coming. But we do know that the time of rightness will have come. God in His infinite wisdom will have decided that the affairs of time are worthy now to be closed. And as such, the dispatching of the son and the angel shall take place. Isn't it interesting, though, in verses 19 and 20, that on the second time when that angel thrust in hits sickle, that that which is gathered is cast into the winepress of the wrath of God. Immediately we gain impression, these were not those who were found worthy. These were not that redeemed that 144,000 we noted earlier. These are those who have rebelled against the Father in heaven, who have refused the sacred nature of the blood of his Son, and who've lived in open and willful rebellion to his will. As such, they have now passed from this life unprepared. And though they now shall stand before the judgment bar of God, we notice that the great wine press of the wrath of God is that which awaits them. And that's nothing to look forward to. For out of that winepress, let us notice the fullness of it in verse 20. The winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress even under the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. The space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. We immediately notice that that furlong and the character of the description thereof takes us to the very last scene I noted on that page thousand six hundred, that's formed as one multiplies four by four by a hundred. We've noticed on more than one occasion the earthly fullness of the number four. We noted, for instance, back in chapter four, the character and thrust of the fact there were four living creatures. We saw in other places, such as Revelation 8, the nature of four angels. Now, we notice that in addition to there being four directional winds upon earth, that here we notice four times four times a hundred, indicating the absolute completeness and fullness. Nobody shall be able to escape the nature of that judgment. Those who are, have so lived that that winepress of the wrath of God is their fate, that's where they shall be. No possible means shall they have of avoiding it, somehow escaping it, somehow convincing God that they ought not be there. His justice will be firm, right, and complete. That very thought leads us to notice that even under the horse bridles is mentioned. An interesting turn of phrase indeed. In the ancient recognition, that corresponds to the fact of outside the city. Did you note with me that as that verse began, the trotting took place not inside the city, but outside. Both Old and New Testament remind us that it's outside the city where criminals were punished and outside the city where various things took place that was rather inhuman, that was rather difficult and mean. In fact, even in Old Testament times, when a person was hanged, it was outside the city. Here we have reference to these that are going to be cast into the winepress of the great wrath of God shall be outside the holy city. They'll not be in heaven. We'll find when we reach Revelation 21 that that great heavenly city shall descend and in all of its beauty and richness we shall appreciate the grandeur that awaits the righteous. The 144,000 of the redeemed, these are outside that city. Apart from God and the Son, forever no more to be with the Holy Spirit and thus they shall be completely without all blessings that God would have to make available. It should make us shudder to think of being cast into the winepress of the wrath of God. But with that scene, chapter 14 closes and chapter 15 opens. And in Revelation 15, we encounter the shortest of the chapters in this book. It has only eight verses. Let us, in fact, read those eight verses and then describe in some detail the things that we shall see of interest in that chapter. Revelation 15, beginning in verse 1. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened, And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke, and the glory of God, and from His power, and no man was able to enter into the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels, were fulfilled. It's again a rather captivating scene, isn't it? To envision that as John was informed or given visions of these things, and he thus proceeded to write them down. Some of these comments from Revelation 15 shall indeed follow. First of all, in verse 1, John saw another sign in heaven. That word sign indicates a degree of witness. A degree of reality of confirming information as it is shared. It is a recognition, a symbol, a sign. Great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. For in them is filled up the wrath of God. John thus here witnesses or observes seven angels, but they possess or have in their possession something rather very interesting. They have seven plagues. Now, we immediately might remember the thrust of the word plague. And in this chapter and the next one, we shall have occasion to lay great significance upon that word. But let us continue on for now and notice what else we see in verse number 2. Notice that John saw, as it were, a sea of glass. Here he sees a sea, but not one as you and I might appreciate of water. It was as it were of glass. But there were some standing nearby. And I might suggest that the actual language of the Greek is more careful in that way. The King James would lead us to see that these apparently are standing on the sea. The actual Greek implies they're standing beside it. Who were these? Verse 2 informs us those that had gotten victory over the beast, those that had gotten victory over the mark of the beast and over the character of his image. As we've already learned in Revelation 13, that mark of the beast, we came to appreciate then, these had gotten victory over that mark. They had not succumbed to the force and temptation of it. They had in fact been victorious over it as they had remained faithful and true to the God of heaven. Furthermore, in a symbolic way, they had the harps of God. That's now the second time we have noted mention of that, for Revelation 14.2 had made mention of the same thing. We briefly noted then that these particular passages provide no authorization for the usage, for instance, of a harp or any other mechanical instrument of music in worship here upon earth. For notice a couple of points. On the one hand, It is stated in Revelation 14 that they each possessed these. If this were thus to be a pattern, every one of us would have to have harps, and every one of us would have to be playing them. But not only that, might we notice that the interesting point about the harps of God as it's appearing on this occasion and place is that notice it's in heaven. What John saw here was not taking place upon earth and we understand that in heaven these were appreciative and symbolic of the glorious richness of the association with God himself. Much as was the case when the sweet singer of Israel, namely David, played the harp in the Old Testament and in so doing soothed the troublesome spirit of Saul. All that reminds us that this again is a symbolic book in which elements and principles of truth are presented to us. In verse 3, do we not notice also that these that we are now seeing are the very same ones who sing a very interesting song? This song we now had begun to appreciate last Lord's Day evening. For in Revelation 14, verse number 3, we noticed that there was a new song being sung by the redeemed. And on that occasion, we agreed we'd revisit that thought when we arrived at this chapter. It would seem that that time is now before us as we ask, what was the nature of that song? What was the message contained in it? How many verses did it have? All of those thoughts captivate us. Might we notice as we fill in those details, verse 3 shall be the key. Notice with me also as we consider the nature of the facts before we begin to put the observations together that a marvelous question is asked in verse 4. That question has to do with appreciating the greatness of the name of God and giving rightful honor and respect to him. For in light of his judgment, he is certainly worthy of it. Verse 5, as John looked further, he noticed that the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony was opened in heaven. An interesting string of prepositional phrases. We shall inquire as to what those signify, but clearly with the temporal and tabernacle mentioned in the same sentence, it would seem to be very significant. Finally, in verses 6 through 8, those seven angels that we noted back in verse 1 were given seven vials or seven bowls full of the wrath of God. And what's more, it was told to them to go and pour them out. And in so doing, verse 8 closes the chapter by saying, that temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and no man was able to enter that temple until the seven angels had poured out those vials and the fullness of that had been completed. Another captivating set of scenes in asking some of the character of it. Let us notice the following observations and try to piece together that which we can now see concerning it. As we return then to verse number one, would you note with me the absolute completeness from a heavenly perspective of what's being described? We noticed the number four indicated earthly completeness earlier in that lesson this evening. But how often have we encountered the number seven representative of and indicative of completeness in the spiritual heavenly realm? Earlier in this book, seven spirits representing the Holy Spirit. Earlier in this book, we saw also the greatness of the seven angels, or the seven plagues, rather. We also saw the seven things poured out in Revelation chapter 8. We saw also the nature, as those in Revelation chapter 5, that that book had seven seals. We could go on to list several other sevens, but might we pause here to notice seven angels, seven bowls, seven plagues. There can be no question of the completeness illustrated here shall be the absolute finality of all that God has to say about judgment. What these angels pour forth shall in fact be an intriguing episode and that will consume our lesson next week for all of them shall be revealed in Revelation 16. For the time being, let us notice furthermore the interesting scene presented to us in regard to that sea of glass. The sea of glass would be such that it would reflect, at least by virtue of fire, the image of fire that may be presented in the distance. Could it well be then here that the great God of heaven is a consuming fire, and as such in his judgment that is in essence the very thing that John saw, reflected in all of its goodness and in all of its majesty in that glassy sea? If that be the case, then notice what it is that follows. Those standing on that sea, those standing beside that sea, I should say, are the very ones who again are redeemed. How often have we seen them pictured in this book and pictured in the most glorious and restful way, having come through the toils and labors of earth, having been able to escape and to become victorious over the beast and the dragon and the marks that associate to them. Yet one more time, here are these very ones standing beside that glassy sea, Would you envision with me the fact that beside that glassy sea, shortly in the distance is God himself. These saints are near to the very heart of God. They've overcome the dragon, again being the devil. They've overcome that great emissary of his, the Roman Empire, and all false religion that he has espoused. Being that victorious, they now are standing so close to their great reward. Heaven is so close to being fully realized for them. We shall ultimately see the completion in Revelation 21. Hold on with me there, when no longer will they be beside the sea. They will be on the same side of it with God himself, enjoying the grandeur and glory of heaven forevermore. That's the message of this book of victory. But notice also in verse 3, time to look at that song again. How many verses did it have? It had two. Two verses. The song of Moses was stanza number one. That immediately takes us back to Exodus chapter 15. On that occasion, when God had mightily with his strong arm led the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage, ultimately the Egyptians pursued them as we remember, but at the Red Sea, God parted those waters and God's people went through on dry ground. The Egyptians thought that they could pursue and in fact they did. But while they were in the midst of that sea, the waters rushed upon them and drowned all of them. In the aftermath of that, in the very next chapter, Moses and Israel sang a song of deliverance unto God and praised his name for the deliverance that they had enjoyed. The song of Moses. When you and I are able to stand in heaven's grand gate, we too shall be able to sing the glorious song of Moses, thanking God for our deliverance from sin, from the devil, from all that in fact are his henchmen and appreciate the grandeur that shall be ours forevermore. Stanza number two, in fact, it only increases in its worthiness, for this is the song of the Lamb. Having praised God for his deliverance, we then in the song of the Lamb can appreciate that it's only through Christ and his blood that that redemption is ours. Many songs in our book testify to redemption's sweet song, the capability of our glorious voices being able to sing in that spiritual abode of the goodness of that idea. Oh, how the Lamb will be worthy of our adoration. For it's only through the Lamb that we shall be able to have that eternal salvation. For He made Him to be sin for us who you knew no sin, that we may be made the righteousness of God in Him. Second Corinthians 5 verse 21. In considering then the words of that song, notice the things that should be included in those stanzas. Great and marvelous the absolute exaltation of God and the Lamb for that which they have made available to us. And as the verse closes, just and true are thy ways. May we again comment that those that enter heaven shall be those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, Revelation seven fourteen, and it shall be those who in fact have availed themselves of all the goodness and salvation that God has made available through His Son. In the aftermath of that scene, verse 4 is a monumental utterance would you notice with me again the reading of Revelation 15 verse 4 who shall not fear thee O Lord and glorify thy name what a grand question for in fact in the verses that follow or in the statements that follow for thou only art holy for all nations shall come and worship before thee for thy judgments are made manifest who shall not worship we know that now upon earth there are many who choose not to worship god there are many who choose to invest their energy and time and efforts in other ways but we learn here another great lesson the time will come when all nations every person shall realize the greatness of god what they ought to have been doing in this life and at that time though it shall be too late to bow and worship him then But they shall appreciate in this verse the character of the fact he's worthy of worship for all thy judgments are made manifest. Doesn't that teach us yet again of the absolute nature of God's judgment that he shall do that which is right? And there shall be no opportunity to question or argue with him on that occasion. All time for appropriate response will have been ended. In fact, it's at that point that we could make a fair conclusion, a fair observation about the nature of the judgment. When you and I stand before God at judgment, we shall not stand there wondering what the character of the verdict will be. For at the time we die, we shall know whether or not. For we remember that that rich man in Luke 16, when he died, he was in torment then. And Lazarus was in the bosom of Abraham then. In fact, the scene of the judgment will not be for us to learn what our eternal fate will be. That we shall already know. The character of the judgment will primarily be to vindicate the God of heaven. For us to appreciate once and for all and finally the fact that God was right all along, that Jesus was his son, and that we ought to have been serving him with all the energy of our life. It will be to vindicate the great God of heaven. Again, in characterization of verse number 4, All nations shall come. All nations shall worship before thee. And so we quickly race to verse number 5 and appreciate there that again this temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was first ordained of God. It was that mobile, portable place of worship in which the children of Israel were able to move about in the 38 years of wilderness wandering. But might we remember that after the time for that had passed, Solomon constructed a temple. And it too was that in which the children of Israel worshipped for many, many years. What's the significance of both of those being mentioned in the same sentence? The tabernacle of the temple of the testimony in heaven. That tells us in a very straightforward fashion about how that just as Israel was pleasing to God when they worshipped properly and rightly in that tabernacle, and just as the same was true in regard to the temple, we of course look forward to the reality of one day being in that grand spiritual temple of God with Him, with the Holy Spirit and Christ. And in so doing, how glorious an opportunity it will be. But might we notice it was opened in verse 5. But it does not say at that point that anyone had entered. For let us look at verses 6 through 8 yet again. For we notice here, the opening of that temple reminds us that in the Old Testament, that temple was only able to be entered that most holy place by the high priest. No regular Israelite ever got to see it the Hebrew writer reminds us in Hebrews 9 verses 6 and 7 that's typical of the fact that it's not until that last day when all of us shall be able to enter the most holy place which is where God himself is. Isn't that what we look forward to? Being able to ultimately and finally enter that rest, that eternal rest where God even then shall be and where he of course is now. And so it is in verses 6 through 8 what must transpire before that happens. We notice that seven angels came out of that temple. These angels had seven plagues, these bowls of heaven. As we notice these particular bowls, would you notice with me the nature that they were full of something? They were full of the wrath of God, again indicating the finality of all things. But isn't it ever so significant that in regard to these bowls, They remind us that indeed the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God. That takes us back again to the scene of the Old Testament. When was the tabernacle glorified with God's presence? When it was filled with that smoke in Exodus 40, 34. And the same was true of the temple in 1 Kings 8, verse 10. Here is a symbolic reference then to the very presence of God and the glory that awaits those that are His. But we have to anticipate one more thing. For it tells us that no man was able to enter it until when? Until the plagues were finished. Those seven plagues had to be completed. Those seven bowls had to be poured out and the plagues completed. And only then could someone enter that temple. Doesn't that remind us of the promises that we find in the scriptures related to that same event? I've listed a picture or included one that is an artist's description of those seven angels carrying bowls. If you can count them, there are indeed seven angels, and they carry these bowls, and they are about to pour them out. And as they do so, it will not be until after that event, to the fulfillment of them, that we shall then be able to see, that one shall enter, have access to the fullness of that temple. These final concluding thoughts, then would be fair to say in regard to these same things that we've just written, That song of the faithful. The character of these seven vials, these seven bowls. The thrust of those things contained therein. The nature of the vindication of God on the occasion of the judgment. As we consider each and every one of them, they have been posed in such a fashion that those first century saints would have been greatly reminded of the encouragement and confidence they could have when that person perhaps would be led out to his slaughter the next morning at dawn by a character of Roman soldiers who had thrust him to death. Perhaps the very previous night he could have read or had read to him this book. For after all, that's the very kind of individuals to whom John wrote it. And how encouraged he could have been to realize that those who shall receive the wine press of the wrath of God are those who have not been faithful. Be faithful until death. I'll give you a crown of life. You and I can have the same degree of encouragement, same degree of confident expectation that we too can be numbered with that redeemed and look forward to the nature of being a part of that group. Who, after these bowls of vengeance are poured out, we shall have in our possession the nature of being with God forevermore, having entered that temple and be in His very presence. We, of course, will have to greatly inquire what shall occur when those bowls are poured out. What shall be the significance of it? And Revelation 16 will detail that in greatness for us next Lord's Day evening. But for tonight, as we make one final set of conclusions, I would ask that you note with me these. For the things we've stated in this chapter seem to harmonize so very well with the statements of Jesus. Jesus. Notice again in John 14, beginning in verse 1, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. When then is the opportunity for entering heaven, Jesus said, When I come back and receive you unto myself, we can't thus say that at the time we pass from this life, then we do not enter heaven. Jesus said, I must come back first. Notice that harmonizes here. No man can enter that temple until the seven plagues are finished. Doesn't that remind us of the Lord's statement in John one eighteen, when it says, no man has seen God at any time. It's unthinkable that someone could already have entered heaven and yet not been permitted to see the glorious face of the God of heaven. These thoughts remind us also of that scene to be noted that in Revelation 8 and Revelation 16, just a few of some of the things that will captivate our attention next Lord's Day evening that will be the one and only mention in all the Bible of the word Armageddon. Oh, how the premillennialists can build a mountain out of a molehill. Come back with us then, if at all you can, let us study together the thrust and fullness of Revelation 16 about these plagues poured out from these bowls. And learn how important it shall be, as I state there at the very bottom of that screen, how eternally important it is for you and me to avoid those plagues, to not be those who shall be susceptible to receive them, but rather to be those numbered with the faithful, with the redeemed, the 144,000, standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb himself, able to hear the God of heaven say, Thou hast been faithful over a few things, be thou ruler over many things, enter thou into the joys of thy Lord." Matthew chapter 25, verses 21 and 23. This evening, we've studied about the nature of the judgment. It has been, in fact, the central theme over and over again of what we've stated.